podcast where we talk about the people you should have a crush on. Because not everyone is terrible. My name is Michaela. And my name is Kat. Man, so uh, I did a thing this week. You did a thing? I did a thing. The thing. I graduated from college. Oh my gosh. That's so exciting. I'm really excited. Except it hasn't really, like, it still hasn't really sunk in. Like, I still have the urge to, like, log in and, like, check my classes and all that stuff. And it's just weird. It's just a reflex at this point. You're a grown-up now. I know. Don't remind me. (laughs) No, that's so exciting. (laughs) Once you, I think after the holidays and when everything is kind of settled down and you kind of have to have a new routine, then it's going to sink in, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. And uh, yeah, and then the uh, job application process will start and yeah, hopefully something will come of that. Oh, I'm sure it will. (laughs) You're more than qualified. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yes. If anyone out there has uh, some awesome jobs. Yeah, if you want to hook me up. <laughs> yeah, let us know. <laughs> but that's great. I was so excited when I saw that that picture of you, the one that I, I tweeted out for us at your graduation. You just looked so happy and I was. excited. I was so happy. And I told you a little bit earlier that the whole day kind of just passed in a little bit of a fog. Mm-hmm. Because, and I feel like that's true with anything that's really exciting, is that the whole event kind of just gets subsumed into like one moments and like yeah. everything else just kind of like falls away and I feel like that is definitely true for graduation. That's awesome. And, yeah. And it was uh it seemed like you brought a little bit of Illinois there because you mentioned that there was a polar vortex in Arizona. Yeah, it was unseasonably cold for Arizona and yeah. it was uh where we were staying in Chandler it was in the 60s. And everybody was, like, bundled up, not outside, <laughs> and we were all like, this is awesome. That sounds so nice right now, honestly. Yeah. I mean, we're, it's it's around 50 degrees today, which is pretty unseasonably warm for us. Yeah. Um, but I'm not complaining. We got to see the sun the last couple days. So you brought Illinois there, and you brought a little bit of Arizona back with you. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. How have, how have you been? I've been good. Just busy working, wrapping presents. Um, Josh and I, can't. we cannot keep, like, presents or surprises from each other. So he got some of his presents early. <laughs> um, but uh, he got, I, I made, uh, I didn't make it. I had this portrait made. I don't know if you saw it, but it's this, like, Victorian woman from the shoulders down, but from the head up, it's our cat Zelda. Uh-huh. Because Zelda's, like, his his baby, and, he like, he loved it. And I was really excited about Aww. that gift. <laughs> That's so cute. So I couldn't wait until Christmas. So it was, it was a really fun moment. But, yeah, things have been good. Just really happy I'm done working until after Christmas yeah. at this point. Um, by the time this episode goes up, I, I will have been back at work already. But I'm just going to enjoy the holidays. Christmas Eve and Christmas, and and it'll be really fun. As you should. Mm -hmm. As should we all. Yeah, we all deserve it. Yeah, we all deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, things have been good. We're just, you know, thank you everyone for letting us take a week off, and it was was very helpful having that extra extra time. But we are back into it. Uh, I'm assuming next week we'll probably be able to stay on schedule. Yeah, I think we're back to our our normal routine. Yeah, next week we'll be recording... If we record on schedule, it'll be on New Year's Eve, but we're coming over anyway, so I was thinking I'll probably yeah. just come over early. Yeah, might we'll as get, well. We'll get a head start on the drinking wine and <laughs> have the episodes up uh, like we normally do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Do you want to go into Self Love Circle? Sure. 
Yeah, so my self-love circle, I'm actually going to be talking about a uh, kind of a goal that I've set with my therapist because I was very, I'm the type of person that always needs to be doing something or working towards something. And so now I have this void now that school's over. And even though school just got out, I'm still, I'm starting to feel that the absence of it and I started even when I was in Arizona I started you know applying to jobs and just kind of looking to see what was out there and just the act of that was causing me a lot of stress and anxiety because I couldn't really do a whole lot from Mm -hmm. Arizona yeah and so it was not a very like nice thing to be doing to myself and I had made the goal originally to not do anything job search wise until after the new year and my therapist was like, didn't you like make that your a goal for yourself to not do that? And I was like, yeah. And so it was kind of like a little bit of a self-betrayal. And, uh, <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, we need to set like a specific amount of time for you to not do anything quote unquote productive in the job uh, arena. So I decided two weeks, I was just going to like Fill, like refill the creative well and just recharge and spend it doing pretty much whatever I want from like recovering from the holidays like you know if it's binging Netflix if it's yeah. like watching you know my favorite movies or reading books like all of that stuff so I've given myself permission over the next two weeks to not do anything good not do anything at all so that's uh <laughs> that's kind of like my goal that's awesome. To not achieve any goals. Yeah, no, that's really good. And it's nice that you were able to kind of make that a goal. Mm-hmm. So if you need to, you can still be like, oh, what's my schedule today? Do nothing. I'm right on schedule. I'm yeah. good. Like, I'm <laughs> on track with my goal. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. You, you definitely do deserve it and you do need it. Um, and I think when you when we get out of, you know, all the New Year stuff, you're going to feel refreshed and, yeah. and it'll be a good jumping off point for, for the job search stuff. Yeah, I think so. I hope so, at least. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. How about you? What's your self-love circle? Um, I was able to get all of my Christmas shopping done on time. Ooh, congrats. Thank you very a much. A round of applause. That is a huge accomplishment. Thank you. Um, I guess I can I could talk a little bit about it because by the time this goes up, it'll be after Christmas, but my parents are getting spoiled rotten this year by Josh and myself because we don't have a whole lot of people to buy gifts for this year. So I know, I know that they're gonna be mad when they see how many things we got them, but it's all practical stuff. Um, and we have an uncle who's visiting who we haven't really been uh, super in contact with for a while. So that'll be really fun. But just like getting everything together in the living room, wrapping everything in like color coordinated wrapping paper, like I'm Martha freaking Stewart or something. <laughs> and just having it like all set and ready to go for when we go over to their house on Christmas. I'm like, it's, it's such a weight off the shoulders. Like nothing is still in transit, everything has been delivered packaged, labeled, and it's ready to go. Oh, that's such a good feeling. It is such a good feeling. As stressful as Christmas shopping and gift wrapping is, I have to say it is very satisfying seeing it all laid out like in your living room and it's all ready to go and you're like, oh yes, it's such a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're going to probably need like a laundry basket to like tote all the gifts everywhere, but it's worth it. I'm, I'm very just excited and relieved for it. So I, there's, at this point, all I have to do is make a dessert for Christmas, and then I'm done. Like, that's it. I'm done. Nice. And I'm still waiting on one more thing for uh, for Jonathan, your roommate. Um, and then we're, we're exchanging gifts at a later date. So I'm not going to worry about that right now. Yeah. 
But yeah, so I'm just really excited to be like done with it. Honestly, yeah. that's my self love. Yeah, you should be. Thanks. That's very exciting. Yeah, so it'll be fun. Um, I'm I'm I love the holidays. I'm trying to have holiday spirit, which is really hard when you're an adult working in retail. Mm-hmm. But I found a way to do it, and I found a way to be productive. Nice. So that's my self love circle. Nice. That is a huge accomplishment. Thank you. I <laughs> I feel that way too. Yeah, it's tough coming through the holidays on like largely unscathed because <sighs> they are a very stressful time. Yes, they are, and and. I, I have the tendency to self-sabotage sometimes. I just put stuff off and procrastinate. So I'm like, I did it. I'm a grown-up Yay. now. So, which opens another world of horrifying possibilities. But I'll, I'll visit those later. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, all I have for self-love circle. Do you want to go into Crush Corner? Yes, let's. Mm, you're first this week, right? I think so. Ooh. So... My crush for this week is none other than the illustrious and venerable Maya Angelou, whose whose body of work culminated into a truly profound career, the importance of gravity of which is just impossible to overstate. In fact, it's difficult to, you know, easily summarize her life because she accomplished so many things and was so much to just so many people. However, she is perhaps best known for her poetry and her memoirs, of which she wrote seven most notably her seminal first autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Uh, But she was also a singer and a dancer, and she was credited with several movies, TV shows, and plays as an actor, director, and or producer. Throughout her life, she was fiercely political. Her peers were among the greatest black intellectuals and writers of the civil rights movement, including James Baldwin, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. Uh, She was a mentor and a mother figure to so many people, and to listen to her speak and to read her words is just to be given an extraordinary gift. But as usual, I want to start at the beginning of her life. Um, So she was born Marguerite Anna Johnson in St. Louis, Missouri in 1928 to Bailey Johnson and Vivian Baxter. She had an older brother named Bailey Jr. who gave her the name Maya. It was short for my sister, but he would mispronounce it as Maya sister, which is That's so, so cute. So cute. Maya sister. So that name just kind of uh, stuck with her, and she went by Maya, at least by her brother uh, Bailey. Uh, when Maya and Bailey were very young, they were sent by train to live with their grandmother in the small southern town of Stamps, Arkansas, which at the time was very segregated. It was here that Maya witnessed horrible racism, being exposed to the Ku Klux Klan and the way that her family was treated by the white residents of Stamps, despite the fact that many of them lived on the land that her grandmother owned. So her, yeah, her grandmother actually was very, not well off, but she was fairly successful for a black woman living in Stamps at the time. She owned the only um, black owned uh, general store and she owned quite a bit of land because she was savvy with her money and her investments. And so many of the poor whites would live on her land, but would still brutally mistreat her. Oh my so god. Just ungrateful. Fu- fucking sucks. Ungrateful little shits. Yeah, seriously. Uh, so her family, uh, because of her grandmother's general store, uh, just survived the Great Depression, largely unscathed. Um, but she did witness, Maya witnessed, the damaging effects on the people in her town. After four years in stamps, Maya and Bailey returned to St. Louis to live with their mother, who had since divorced their father, and it was here that Maya would suffer one of the worst traumas of her life, and content warning here for rape and child abuse. Um, So if you want to skip like the next minute or so, uh, feel free to do so. Um, So while Maya lived in St. Louis, she was actually raped by her mother's boyfriend at the age of seven and a half, which was awful. And... 
this was a just a horrible horrible experience for her and as common as it is common for rapists and child abusers the violator promised to kill her brother bailey if she ever told anybody terrified she kept this horrible secret to herself but made it, it but it, keeping the secret made her physically ill to the point where her family and bailey began to notice that something was wrong with her and bailey eventually was able to get it out of her um, and they were able to bring the violator to court. Unfortunately, he was so he was convicted of the crime, but unfortunately, he only spent a single day in prison before being released, oh. which is just the justice system for you. I just got like the chills, but in like a bad, gross way. Like, yeah, that is horrifying. Yeah, it it was horrifying. Oh. I wonder if it was because part if if it was partially because. Maya was black, and black victims just aren't, they were not humanized, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, it could that's be. disgusting. This this whole this whole part of her life was documented in I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and I'm fairly certain it had something to do with the rapist's lawyer being able to get him off in under a day. I'm not sure of the details, but well, however... he can run hell. Yeah, yeah, well... He was brutally murdered the day of his release. Cool. <laughs> so, so justice was served quickly. Uh, he was supposedly kicked to death. And in retrospect, Maya believed that her uncles had been the ones to kill him because they were fiercely protective of her and their whole family. Good. But in her seven-year-old mind, she was convinced that the reason he had died was because she had spoken his name and revealed their secret. So she internalized that guilt and believed truly that her voice had the power to kill people. So she stopped talking altogether for about five years, which is just the most tragic Sweet baby thing angel. to yeah to fall to a child. Oh my god! So all her communication with people took place over a writing tablet, and she did not speak a word. She fell into such a deep depression that her mother, unsure of how to help her, sent her and Bailey back to live with their grandmother in Stamps, Arkansas. Which honestly, probably was even worse because the re- the initial rejection back when they were both much younger had been horrible on the two of them and then to be rejected a second time after this trauma, this trauma must have been horrifying. Oh jeez. So during this time uh, Maya developed a passion for poetry and literature. She read anything and everything she could get her hands on and although she did not speak. Her grandmother reassured her that one day she would be a great preacher and speaker, which was very prophetic because that's exactly what happened. Uh, to help Maya, her grandmother solicited the help of a local woman named Bertha Flowers, who invited invited Maya over to her house one afternoon and introduced her to all of her favorite poetry and books. She told Maya that she'd never truly love poetry if she never spoke it out loud. She could never appreciate its beauty until she felt the words pass over her lips. And Maya really took this to heart, and it gave her the courage to go under her house and practice reading out loud, which is how she slowly began to speak again. So she she would spend this time just kind of in secret, just under her house, completely alone, so that nobody else could hear her speak. And she would just read these poems and these books out loud, and that's how she eventually found the courage to speak again. I'm gonna cry. I I know. (laughs) It's, It's really... But it's it's so it's it's as horrifying as that whole situation is. Like she truly found solace in her words, in the words that she spoke from these passages, and in that is is beautiful. Um, at age fourteen, Maya and Bailey moved back in with their mother, who had moved now to Oakland, California. Uh, Maya studied dance and music at the California Labor School, where she fell in love with the performing arts. 
During her time here, at age 16, she became the first black cable car conductor. She fell in love with the uniforms and how dignified the white women looked while they worked, and she was determined to get hired. She spent hours waiting outside the hiring office for weeks, and finally, after much persistence, she was offered the job. That's my favorite. And I know. I love that so much, because it's she was only 16 at the time, and she had so much gusto, and she just, lo- she just loved the idea of being able to, you know, make people's day better, and just the, the station and the, the uniform... And through a whole lot of persistence, she was able to achieve that goal. And I think that's wonderful. I just, I love the idea of like waiting outside, you know, waiting in line, beating all odds to get this job, fighting for this job. Yeah. Because of how awesome the women who had that position looked in their uniforms. Like that's such, that's so relatable. I I know. (laughs) Like we all wish we had that willpower. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. And she had willpower just in, in droves. Uh, So then a year later, at 17, she became pregnant with her son, Guy Johnson, who she gave birth to only weeks after her high school graduation, which is just insane. Wow. She actually kept her pregnancy a secret from her family for a long time because she wasn't sure how her mother was going to react to it. And her mother, Vivian, was actually incredibly supportive when she found out that Maya was pregnant. She asked if she loved the father, and she and Maya said no. And she then her mother asked if the father loved her, and Maya said no. And Vivian said, you know, well, then there's no reason to ruin three lives. We're going to have a baby, and it's going to be amazing. Oh! And, yeah, which is just... So, that, that support coming from a mother is just so amazing especially at the time that this was in so ahead of its time yeah during the 1940s or like late 1940s uh so after high school in the early 1950s uh she performed in various nightclubs in california as a dancer she also sang and recorded calypso afro-caribbean music Although she wasn't a classically trained vocalist, she had just a beautiful voice. And for those interested in hearing it, she actually has an album available on Spotify. Oh! Which is, yeah, amazing. And she really, really did have just a powerful, beautiful voice. Mm -hmm. Love it. Uh, In 1951, she married a man named Tosh Angelos, a Greek electrician, former sailor, and writer. Their marriage was short-lived, as they divorced a few years later in 1954, but she kept a variation of his last name, Angelo, at the suggestion of her talent manager, who thought she should have a flashier name then, Johnson, and it stuck with her, and she became Maya Angelou. Uh, In 1959, she joined the Harlem Writers Guild, and a year later, she met Martin Luther King Jr. after listening to him speak at a New York church. She began working with him and became the Northern Coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was just incredible. It is awesome. Uh, she spent some time in Cairo, Egypt, working as an associate editor for the English newspaper The Arab Observer. Later, she moved to Ghana for her son Guy to attend college, where he suffered a terrible accident that nearly crippled him. And as difficult as this experience was for Maya, it was during this time that she met Malcolm X, who was visiting Ghana on a search for an African government that would hold the United States accountable for its crimes and mistreatment of its black citizens. Uh, The two, uh, Maya and Malcolm, became fast friends, and in fact, Maya returned to the U.S. to help build the Organization for Afro-American Unity, but Malcolm was assassinated shortly after she returned to the U.S., which, awful. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. asked her to help him organize a march, but he was assassinated in a horrible twist of fate on Maya's 40th birthday. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Just awful. And... Completely devastated, Maya fell back into a brief period of not speaking. Where she, really, yeah, and it, it was it was brief. Like this was uh, 
in this documentary that I watched on Netflix for her, it was only it only lasted a couple of days, but she could not bring herself to speak. And I guess she just sort of reverted back to how she knew how to handle trauma, which was just to not speak. That's straight up PTSD. Yeah. Like that. Wow. That's yeah. upsetting. And, but like still like, wow. I have no words. Yeah, it was incredibly sad. But her very close friend, James Baldwin, he kind of swooped into the rescue. And after she had kind of been difficult to contact for a couple of days, he showed up at her door and kind of saw the state of her apartment and how she was living. And he was like, you know, we, we need to like get you out of the house and I'm going to take you somewhere. And so he took her to a dinner party with uh, Jules Pfeiffer and his wife, Judy, who was a uh, Jules Pfeiffer was a a popular cartoonist at the time and over this dinner party they all exchanged stories and Judy uh, Jewel Pfeiffer's uh, wife was just so impressed with all the stories that she had to tell that the next day she contacted um, a very famous editor named uh, Robert Loomis who she told him that you know this woman has a book in her somewhere and uh, Robert was very intrigued and he contacted Maya asking her if she'd be interested in writing an autobiography. And at the time, Maya was not open to the idea of writing about her life. And uh, it took multiple phone calls, but eventually uh, what ended up working was reverse psychology. <laughs> <laughs> no one he, wants to read well, about yeah. your life, Well, Maya. she He basically was like, you know, Maya, it's probably a good idea that you're not writing this book because autobiography is incredibly difficult to do. And she, then, yeah, <laughs> but she rose to the challenge and she was like, all right, well then maybe I'll do it, <laughs> which was just amazing. And uh, so he knew what he was doing. He, he did. Yeah. Um, so eventually she agreed and she wrote Why the Caged Bird Sings and that book launched her to international acclaim. And she said that she kind of became addicted to the to just the act of writing autobiography because it's just this way to cleanse for her to go back and see things from a new perspective. And that book is so beautiful and it it, it just so many people, particularly, you know, black women just see themselves in it oh, yeah. and they they, you know, they relate to it and they connect with her on such a profound level that she kind of becomes a, a mother figure to all of these women. And it's amazing. Um, and I want to talk briefly about her writing process. So whenever she would go to write these long form books, she would often like go on writing retreats where she would, you know, rent a hotel room. She would ask for all of the paintings and all the decorations to be taken from the walls and she would just write in her like just a yellow legal pad she would have a bible and a thesaurus and a deck of cards with her and the deck of cards she would use as just a meditative tool to kind of get her into the zone to a place where she could go back in time and remember and sometimes it would take her hours to get there but once she got there the words would just flow and she wrote everything longhand, and it was just amazing. And I, lo I love that process because it just sounds very therapeutic and so raw and authentic. It sounds like the dream. Like, I, I've, I've had fantasies about, like, going off somewhere on my own and just, like, focusing just on writing something or just on, a, you know, an, ende an artistic endeavor of some kind. And it's, like, that's kind of, like... A creative's dream, you know, if, yeah. if they work best alone and in solitude. I mean, that's amazing that she had this system for herself that she knew 
she knew it worked and she knew how to get the words going mm-hmm. and that it, it, you know, it worked for her. That's incredible. Yeah, it was. And, and, you know, I also want to talk, she spoke often about courage being the most important virtue that a person could have in practice because she said without courage, you can't, you cannot practice any of the other virtues on a consistent basis. You can't be kind. You can't love on a consistent basis without courage. And an anecdote that I think best sums up how much she believed in that is a story that her son Guy Johnson actually shared in a documentary called Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, which is available on Netflix, which is an amazing documentary about her life. But he was he remembered a demonstration that she was putting on when he was very young and she brought him along and they had about 400 people that were protesting the mistreatment of the protesters of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So this was not the civil rights protest, but it was like a protest in opposition to the way that those protesters were being treated. Yeah. And they had about 400 participants and they were all in the streets and Uh, police officers on horses kind of started storming the streets and were pushing people off the streets and everybody in this protest started fleeing like going to the sidewalks and trying to clear the streets because at that time there was a genuine fear of being trampled because the police would not relent and they would kill um, if you got in their way which is awful to think and so uh, as people started departing the street and making their way toward the sidewalks. Maya and Guy held their ground and kept walking forward. And Guy Johnson remembers, you know, kind of pulling on his mom's arm and saying, hey, like, let's let's move. You're going to get us killed. And she said something that he said will always stick with her, him. And uh, let me find the quote. He said that she told him, one person standing on the word of God is the majority, which is just... A beautiful sentiment and it, it just showed so much courage in her convictions at the time and by the time they got right up to the police there were only about eight of the 400 people left standing oh in the God. street and as they were passing as the police were passing she took a pin from her hair and stabbed it into one of the horses oh. <laughs> <laughs> which I feel sad I'm sorry for the horse the horse did not deserve that but the horse, like the horse, survived. I'm the horse, sure. the horse survived. But the <laughs> the horse, you know, whinnied and like reeled back, and the police was kicked off of his horse. And as soon as that happened, everybody from the sidewalks flooded back onto the streets, and the march continued. Oh wow! And which and and Guy Johnson was in tears telling the story because he said he had never, like, he was young at the time, but he had never seen so much courage up close before and I feel like that story perfectly illustrates the kind of woman she was she was just so incredible because when you hear her speak it's with so much compassion Mm -hmm. and so much understanding and forgiveness but that doesn't mean that she wasn't angry and didn't know what needed to be done and wasn't fiercely political and she knew exactly like just the problems and just the evil that plagued the world but you know when she spoke it was always with so much like poise Mm -hmm. but she did have it in her to protest and to literally throw an officer from his horse and and so it's 
she's such an amazing person to me and so impressive and I love her so much. She's incredible. I mean, what just that quote, what what is it one person standing um, one person standing on the word of God is the majority. Like just that she she had poetry in her blood. Like everything she did was was had an air of poetry to it and she was just not only such a very talented writer and speaker but just to like have that conviction and to be that driven but not be an angry person it would have been so easy for her to become an angry person Mm -hmm. from you know surviving the trauma that she dealt with in her childhood which is one of the most devastating things someone can go through and not become embittered by it and not be just a vindictive angry person who wants to cause harm to other people yeah is incredible like it speaks so much about her her strength and her power that she was able to just be such a lovely well-spoken and still very driven and powerful woman like i'm just blown away by her yeah absolutely i think she like i said listening to her speak Reading her poems is one thing. Listening to her recite her poems is completely different. It hits home in such a different way. And it's, it's, it almost like brings you to tears with how beautiful her words really are. And I, I had thought about reading one of her poems for this episode, but decided against it because there's no way that I could do justice to her words. And yeah. I'll put a link in, in our show notes to... Uh, maybe like a video of her of her reciting one of her poems because I think that would be awesome yeah yeah but I have such a huge crush on Maya Angelou I have such a crush on her too she was such a saint and and like you said she very easily could have taken the trauma that happened to her and become a very hateful person but in fact she was the exact opposite she was filled with nothing but forgiveness and as a result, I feel like she was very, she was almost like a, she was like a saint mm-hmm. and a sage for so many people that just felt lost or were angry about the world. But because she had been there and she saw all of that too, she kind of acted as like a beacon of light for so many people and showed that there was another way that it didn't have to be anger and hatred. It could be just conviction and forgiveness and hope and love. And I love that so much. It's it's so admirable, and I, I wish she was still with us today. Me too. So we could use her voice. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> especially, yeah, especially right now. So I'll, I'll, I definitely want to check out the documentary on Netflix. It sounds really good. And I love that it features her son, too. But, wow. Thank you so much yeah, for, for talking about Maya Angelou. What absolutely. an incredible person. Oh, I want to just, like, absorb everything by her now. I know. <laughs> oh, should we go uh, refill our wine glasses? Yes, We're let's. drinking red wine, by the way, this week, you guys. Yes. So yeah. let us know if the vibe is different. <laughs> uh, all right, we will be back after uh, a quick break from our sponsor, and once we have more wine. Bye. All right, we are back. We have uh, refilled our wine glasses, and it's my turn. Yes. Kat, who do you have for us this week? I want to talk to you guys about one of my favorite performers, Miss Dolly Parton. Yay! Who I'm sure everyone 
kind of knows a little bit about her, but we will get into the nitty gritty and talk all about why Dolly's amazing. Uh, I'll start at, at the beginning. Uh, Dolly Parton was born in 1946 in the small town of Pittman Center, Tennessee. She was the fourth of 12 children, uh, which was quite a big deal because the family was actually so poor that they lived in a one-room cabin. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, her father paid the doctor who delivered Dolly with a bag of oatmeal. Wow. So they kind of were working with what they had. Yeah. (laughs) Growing up, her family was very involved in their church, and Dolly would often sing at the services. Uh, the entire family was actually very musical, and Dolly and her siblings would often get their hands on any musical instrument they could and see if they could play it. Dolly got her first guitar at the age of eight, and throughout her life she learned how to play the guitar, banjo, dulcimer, fiddle, piano, saxophone, and more. That's amazing. Some people just have that talent, yeah, and right? I don't understand oh, it. I wish I had that. Me too. <laughs> uh, one day when she was little, Dolly was walking through town with her mom when she saw a woman who presumably is a sex worker... Uh, walking around, who was noticeable because she had huge hair, bright makeup, and a glamorous aesthetic. Her mother told Dolly that that woman was quote-unquote trash, and Dolly said that that was the moment she decided she wanted to grow up to be trash as well. That's one of my favorite anecdotes it's, about her. It's one of mine too, because she's just like, yes, <laughs> that is my look, that is my style, and it's so iconic. Yeah. And she, you know, it doesn't, she's, she's, not a trashy person in the least. No, I love that she's kept that aesthetic yeah. throughout her entire life. It's who career. she is. Yeah. Um, Dolly began singing on local radio programs when she was, uh, local radio programs and television shows when she was only 10. And she performed at the Grand Ole Opry where she met Johnny Cash, who encouraged her to keep singing and to follow her instincts when it comes to her career. That must have been such an amazing compliment to receive from Johnny Cash. I know, like the man. Yeah. The man in black himself. (laughs) Um, After she graduated, Dolly actually moved to Nashville to pursue, pursue a career as a singer the day after. Like, so she graduated one day and then she was like... Peace out. I'm going to Nashville. (laughs) Uh, Right after she moved, she met Carl Dean, and the two fell in love and got married when he was 22 and she was 18, and they've been happily married ever since. I know. Love story for the ages. (laughs) During the next few years, she began writing songs for other performers and started gaining some mild success. In 1967, she was noticed by Porter Wagoner, who invited Dolly to have a reoccurring appearance on the Porter Wagoner show, singing and performing alongside him. Wagner convinced his label to sign her and helped her along by recording duets with her. The duo was named Vocal Group of the Year in 1968 by the Country Music Association. So I actually read that um, Dolly was a replacement for Wagner's old co-host, and she had big shoes to fill, and she did it really well. Um, During the time that her duets with Wagoner were popular, Dolly's solo music began taking off, most noticeably with the song Jolene. And I've heard conflicting stories about how that song was inspired. The story that I had originally written down uh, said that it was inspired by a redheaded bank teller she saw flirting with her husband Carl. But I also heard on Drunk History (laughs) that she met a little girl and signed an autograph for her who had beautiful red hair, and that girl's name was Jolene. So there's, like, a bunch of weird conflicting stories. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of, you know, just folklore at this point. Yeah. Because the song is so iconic. Uh, Once she gained some success, she and Wagner decided it was best that Dolly went on a solo career path. Although they remained close friends, Dolly said goodbye to Wagoner's variety show, and as a final goodbye, she wrote the famous song, I Will Always Love You, for him. 
The song got the attention of Elvis Presley, who wanted to record it, but when Dolly found out it would mean that she'd be signing over half the proceeds of it, or profits from it, she refused. The choice ensured that she would go on to receive millions of dollars in royalties over the years. I still, like, like that is such, that was such a smart and brave decision. Mm-hmm. Who because, says no to Elvis? Right? Yeah. I feel like any starry-eyed, up-and-coming singer would jump at the chance to have their music bought by Elvis Presley. Oh, yeah. And for her to not do that, and then to come out on top anyway, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, he had enough hits. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not in want for anything. Exactly. Uh, in 1976, Dolly began her own variety show called Dolly, with an exclamation point, and began pursuing more mainstream paths for her music. She recorded some pop music, which was good, but didn't garner too much attention. She blended styles until she found a formula that worked and ended up with the 1977 album Here You Come Again, which won her a Grammy the following year. Around this time, Dolly also began acting, and she starred alongside Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda in the movie 9 to 5, which she wrote the theme song to, and that song went on to receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. Amazing. That song slaps. It does. It's so good. It absolutely does slap. (laughs) If you haven't heard it, pause this episode right now, pull it up on Spotify or YouTube, and enjoy. You will not be sorry. Um, she went on to act in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Steel Magnolias, Unlikely Angel, Joyful Noise, Rhinestone, and even more. During all of this, Dolly wrote every day. She says that throughout the years, she believes she's written over 3,000 songs. So we were talking a little bit about, like, the writing formula. She had it figured out, too. Yeah, that's an impressive body of work. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even know how many of those will never see the light of day, but, I mean, damn. Uh, In 1992, Whitney Houston recorded a cover of I Will Always Love You for her film The Bodyguard, and the song and film were both insanely successful and got Houston a total of three Grammys, which is when Dolly started seeing some of those royalties rolling in. Oh, yeah. She knew what she was doing. I don't know how she did it, but she did it. Uh, Dolly continued to write, record, and perform in her eclectic style, with music ranging from pop to country to bluegrass, and released several covers, including Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, Collective Soul's Shine, and a collection of cover songs including Imagine, Crimson and Clover, and Where Have All the Flowers Gone. In 2005, Dolly wrote and recorded the song Travelin' Through for the film Trans America, because the song and film featured the acceptance of a trans woman, trans woman, Dolly received numerous death threats, but didn't let it slow her down. Right after, she crushed the country charts by singing for Brad Paisley's When I Get Where I'm Going. She released her first single from her own record company, Dolly Records, in 2007, followed by the album Backwoods Barbie, which reached number two on the country chart. She wrote the score to the 9 to 5 musical, and in 2009 released a four-CD box set that featured 99 songs spanning her career. She's earned nine Grammy Awards, including her 2011 Lifetime Achievement Award, and has the most nominations of any female artist in the history of the prestigious award, a record that was tied by Beyonce. Wow. She never stopped. queens. I know. (laughs) I bet they're friends, too. I hope so. Me, too. (laughs) Um, She consistently toured, recorded, wrote, acted, and that's not even touching her philanthropy, which is probably one of my favorite things about her. So, most of Dolly's earnings went right back into business ventures in her native East Tennessee to bring jobs and tax revenue to her region, which had suffered a huge depression. She founded the Dollywood Foundation, including the Imagination Library, which mails one age-appropriate book to each enrolled child every month from the time of birth to when they begin school. That's so amazing. It's a lot of books. (laughs) 
Dolly was honored by the Library of Congress in 2018 when her foundation sent out its 100 millionth book. In 2006, she pledged $500,000 towards a hospital and cancer center to be constructed in the name of Dr. Robert F. Thomas, the doctor who delivered her, who had been paid with the bag of oatmeal. She earned a partnership award from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for her efforts to preserve the bald eagle and the Woodrow Wilson Award for Public Service in 2007. For her work in literacy, she has received the following. This is an extensive list. The Association of American Publishers Honors Award, Good Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval, the American Association of School Administrators Galaxy Award, National State Teachers of the Year Chasing Rainbows Award, and Parents as Teachers National Center's Child and Family Advocacy Award. She received an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from Knoxville's College of Arts and Sciences. Wow. Yeah. Um, That is insane. Yeah. One of my favorite things actually happened in 2016. In response to the fires that were ravaging through the Great Smoky Mountains, Dolly participated in a telethon to raise money for victims of the fires, helping to raise over $9 million. Yeah. She just just, is incredible. Yeah. She's the epitome of somebody using their fame for good. Oh, absolutely. Uh, She also is the co-owner of Dollywood, a dinner theater and amusement park in Pigeon Forge, which has 3 million visits per year. And when I went there back in, oh gosh, it must have been 2004, maybe? I think it was 14, no, I don't know how old I was, but I went there when I was a teenager. And uh, they, at the time, it had the world's, or at least the country's biggest wooden roller coaster, which Mm. is just a little fact, but I love it. (laughs) She's just an incredible woman, and I I can't imagine having a thriving marriage, a thriving career, writing every day, and just, like, shelling her money out left and right for all these amazing endeavors, and just philanthropy and charity, and not to even mention, you know, her outspoken advocacy for, for gay rights, especially... She's just an incredible woman. Yeah. And when you when you hear her speak, she is such a sweetheart. She is. She's so a Southern sweet. belle. Yeah. And I don't understand how one person can be so good. Oh, I know. She's just... Her heart and her smile are, like, just huge. And she's just this larger-than-life personality. She loves being larger-than-life. And she loves the way she looks and how she presents herself. And the fact that... Thousands of drag queens across the country emulate and impersonate her just flatters her to no end, which which just makes me smile. (laughs) That's amazing. I can't remember if it was you that told me this tidbit or if I heard this somewhere. Did she lose a Dolly lookalike contest? She did. I think she came (laughs) in fourth or like third because the drag queens were so talented that she's like, (laughs) all right, you know, and I'm sure she, she had a laugh about it and, you know, was flattered that drag queens looked up to her so much um she's just such a dear person and you know she was even in like um what was that show? oh and she was in hannah montana because she's miley cyrus's real life godmother yeah which i think is great yeah uh she's just been like it's it's she pops up in the most random places in cinema and in music and she's fantastic yeah Ugh. it almost doesn't seem fair that all this talent is condensed into one person. I know. Save some for the rest so, of us, ser- Dolly. Seriously. Yeah. Like, so prolific and so giving, so charitable, and so just kind mm-hmm. in general. 
One of my favorite aspects of her is in interviews, she's frequently asked about her marriage with Carl. And he's a very private person. And she has said, you know, it's, it's really nice having someone that I have a strong bond with that doesn't need to be in the limelight. I can travel everywhere I need to go. I can get all these press releases and appearances taken care of. And he's totally fine being on the sidelines. It doesn't mean he's on the back burner by any means, but he does not want to be famous. Yeah. And they've reached this really nice balance in their marriage where they're completely happy with her being out in the spotlight all the time That's and so him wonderful. being behind the scenes. That's so wonderful. It's kind of a classic uh, opposites attract sort of thing. Yeah. Just in the sense that she seems so extroverted and so hungry for just everything oh yeah that it probably helps to have a more like subdued introverted person yeah who's still willing to support her and just be there for her i think that it's it's rare that you know these days we don't see a lot of celebrity marriages really last for a super long time there are obviously exceptions but the fact that they got married when she was 18 yeah which is incredibly young to be married, and that they're still going strong is adorable, and it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. It's very sweet. Just goals, relationship goals. Exactly. Yeah, we should all strive to be like Dolly and Carl. Um, they're they're adorable, and she's just such a vibrant person. I'd love to meet her. I don't know how she has enough. How's, how she has that energy though? Yeah. Just to get everything done. Yeah. I can't do it, but. I know it's, I kind of blew through that whole segment, but I mean, there's just, I would, if I could, I would spend the next 10 minutes of the podcast just playing you her music because she's so talented. She really is talented. I can't believe how many instruments she learned how to play at such a young age. I know. Absolutely incredible. I could see, you know, the banjo and the guitar shirt, but then the saxophone comes into play and I'm like, all right, Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, and the dulcimer, which, you know, I know what a hammered dulcimer is. I don't know what a regular dulcimer looks like. But she's just so talented. She just has that gift. Yeah. Do you know, by any chance, kind of what became of the rest of her siblings? Because she ha- she had so many siblings. Um, There is. This is purely a rumor, and I actually have not done a lot of research in this. But according to my husband, Josh, when I was talking to him about Dolly Parton, one of her siblings unfortunately stole some money from her that prevented her from opening up a second Dollywood location. Ooh. This is all speculation. Yeah. He may be completely wrong, and if he is, I fully blame him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I will take responsibility. But there was, there was, I believe, some legal action that was preventing her from opening another Dollywood location. But I think that has all been settled, because the last time I checked, there are still plans for more Dollywood locations. Mm-hmm. She's obviously still making you know, tons of money here, you know, with all of her projects. So I'm hoping that we see more. Dollywood was a, was a riot. Um, but I just, I don't know what the story is with her other siblings, but I hope that there's, I hope that they're doing very well. Yeah. Can you imagine having 11 siblings? No, I can't. Not at all. Can you imagine I... having 11 siblings and one of them being Dolly Parton? <laughs> No, I would not enjoy being that the sibling, the other sibling. Oh, God. That would be. It's rough. It's a rough rough. shadow to live in. Yeah, it would be. I'm I'm sure they're all equally as talented, but she had that that business side of her mind that is so sharp that, you know, she makes such good calls with her career and who she chooses to do business with and the songs she chooses to publish that she just, I don't, it's, it's almost supernatural. 
Yeah. Some people are just born with that innate sense, that innate savvy. Yeah. So I just, I, I, I love her to death. And I, I know that I kind of rattled through that really quickly. No. But I absolutely love Dolly Parton. And thank you very much for letting me bring her. Thank you for discussing her. Oh, of course. It's a pleasure to hear Anytime. her life. <laughs> She's oh. just so good. She, is. she really is. All right. Well, with that, should we uh, move into infatuation station? Yeah. You take it first, though, because I'm still not entirely sure what I'm going to talk about. Okay. Okay. So my infatuation station is actually a book that I read a while ago, but I'm actually rereading in preparation for the next book in the series. Mm. So it is a book called The Poppy Wars by R.F. Kuang. And it is just this really, really cool book. Let me just grab my notes. So the plot is a very, it's a magical political book. And it's largely inspired by 20th century China. And the conflict kind of revolves around the Second Sino-Japanese War. So that's kind of where the inspiration comes from. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to read the summary from Wikipedia. So uh, Wikipedia says that the novel centers on a poor orphan Rin who trains in secret to test the elite sign who 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 trains in secret to test into the elite sign guard academy. Kuang, the author, said that Rin's life is meant to parallel the trajectory of Ma, uh, Mao Zedong, grounded in the real world history of Chinese wars and adding a fantasy drug element inspired by the Opium Wars. The Poppy War is a dark and fatalistic tale of warfare. When a conflict surfaces between the Nakara Empire and their neighboring nation, Mugen, Rin is called to the front lines. She must decide whether to make a deal with the gods to unleash her shamanic powers. Her decision may change the world, but result in the loss of her, her humanity. So it's a very... There's, there's a lot going on in this book. So it kind of starts with a sort of like a magical school trope where she trains and is able to make it into this school where you know she's kind of sorted into or she can choose to be into a different um different sex of the school and train in a very specific discipline but it also brings in this element of shamanism and altered states of consciousness through poppy where you're able to convene with the gods and the gods are able to help you through their powers and then there's like the political warfare element. It's a very intriguing. There's a lot going on in this book, and I absolutely love it. That sounds and really good. It's very interesting, and it's based on, you know, real life events loosely, loosely inspired by actual wars and actual political conflicts. But it's absolutely amazing, and you know, just flipping through the pages, kind of trying to get refreshed for the the next installment. I was just reminded of how much I love this book, and it's so good. I highly recommend it. It's awesome. Yeah, and I also have a huge crush on the author herself, R.F. Kuang, who is so smart. She actually wrote this book while working toward a degree in Chinese history from Georgetown University, where she, she so she wrote this book while she was pursuing her degree, and then she graduated just a few days after the release of the book. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot going on in her life during during this time. But, yeah, absolutely adore the book The Poppy Wars. So I'm going to have to look that Yeah, up. definitely, definitely do. It's very interesting. A little bit dark, but it's it's very good. It sounds really compelling, though. Yeah, yeah. Like that, I, lo- I love that premise. It's such an original premise, mm-hmm. too. That has It's not like a, a trope that's been done to death. Yeah. Which is really nice. Yeah. And actually, like, the writer, she's Amer- she's an Asian-American. 
And she said that the reason that she wrote this book in the first place was because she was not seeing these stories anywhere on the bookshelves and she wanted to write the story that she wanted to read. And so, yeah, so that's, it's awesome. It's a great story. I've read some of the best stories because the authors have had that exact same perspective. Mm -hmm. Like they've written what they've wanted to read and Mm -hmm. and it's, it's awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. I've got an audible credit. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. (laughs) Waiting to spend it. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So what is your infatuation station? Okay, I decided on one. (laughs) Uh, My infatuation station this week is the show that Josh and I have been binging for the last couple weeks. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, Schitt's Creek. I have seen the first episode of Schitt's Creek. It is so fucking funny. Uh, We're in the middle of the third season right now. I believe there's five seasons total. Uh, It stars Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy's son, Dan Levy, and... Annie Murphy, and they play this really rich, well-to-do family that kind of had everything ripped out from under them, and they have to live in this town that Johnny, the father played by Eugene Levy, purchased as a joke called Shit's Creek. <laughs> it is so hilarious and just so pure and full of heart that I cannot, like, every time I watch an episode, I just start cackling because it's so good. Catherine O'Hara is, it's so incredible oh, in that show. She, 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 from the one episode that I saw, she's just a treasure. She's so, <laughs> her character Moira Rose is this, you know, this retired soap opera actress who's just so over the top. And the way she, de- uh, the way that Catherine O'Hara delivers her lines is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Because she, she's a very talented actress, but her character is just ridiculous. Yeah. And it could easily be a show about these rich assholes in this small town, but you really get to know these characters as being pure-hearted and kind-hearted and just totally out of their, out of you know, in over their heads, basically, yeah. with, with being a normal middle-class American. And it's such a good show. Um, Dan Levy, who plays David, the main character's son, uh, is one of the main writers, and he has just created an incredible program. Yeah, it looks so good. It, it is so good. <laughs> I'm really intrigued by it, because we watched the first episode, and then uh, Austin, my fiancé, was like, you know, I don't really know if I want to continue watching this, because he was a little bit put off by, like, the the main cast, because in the first episode, they're still in the zone of, like, we're rich they're, assholes. Exactly. And, and he was like, I don't know if the show's going to be very relatable. But, I mean, I feel like with any comedy like that you have to watch like the first couple of episodes to Mm -hmm. really get to know the characters because once you get to know the characters then it's just awesome yeah and i feel like i've heard nothing but good things about schitt's creek and i'm really excited to keep watching it it's so good one of my favorite things about it is there is a scene very early on i believe in like episode three or four where david this this the son of this rich family is trying to explain his sexuality to this girl that he met that he's become friends with And she had been under the impression that he was gay. And so they're talking about it. And the metaphor that they're using is they're discussing wine. So she was like, I thought you liked red wine. And he was like, I do like red wine, but I also like white wine (laughs) and occasionally a rosé. It's it's so beautifully said that it, it, it makes the audience understand exactly what he's saying without it being too wordy and complicated. Because his character is pansexual. Mm-hmm. And so it really illustrates that point in a very clear and kind way. 
And there's a couple other things in that show that do the exact same thing in a very kind and funny way that just have me rolling on the floor laughing every time I watch it. Oh, so I'm excited. I think you should make Austin give it another chance. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think in the new year we definitely will. Yeah, it's it's very good. So I think that's going to be my infatuation station today. Oh, it's just thank you. how amazing that show is. Good choice. Definitely recommend it. I, I believe it's over now. So you can easily watch the whole thing. It's it is five seasons, but trust me, it's easy to binge. Yeah, that's that's doable. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you and I are growing up in a time where we're presented with eight season long shows and extensive stories and plots. Five seasons is nothing. Yeah, yeah. I'll put that on my docket for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can use that. You can put that as one of your goals. You yeah, know, on your list of ungoals whatever I don't know what I'm talking about I'm very tired I had to get up at five o'clock this morning (laughs) this is okay oh I wanted to tell you I started reading Lore Olympus you did do you like it I love it oh my god the art style is so beautiful I'm only on chapter I think like 11 or 12 somewhere Mm -hmm. up there but it's I love it so far. It's so it's good. so good. I love Persephone. I love how like pure she is. She is so She's naive. So cute. And I love I love how Hades is just like good guy Hades. Yeah. Well, and that's my favorite aspect about it is because for anyone who who didn't listen to last week's episode or sorry two weeks ago, I talked about this webcomic Laura Olympus that I'm in love with, and uh, so that's what we're talking about now. But one of my favorite things about it is that the original story is very violent. You know, the taking of Persephone. And Hades in Lore Olympus is such an honorable character. Okay. He's in no way a bad guy. And it's like, okay, I can actually get into this story now because Hades isn't a total dick. Yeah. And I, I love the whole, like, you know, Aphrodite is jealous of mm-hmm. him. And so she, like, sets him up for failure. But Hades, because in this comic, he's such a good guy. He does, like, everything right. He, you know... Aphrodite like leaves him, leaves Persephone like in his car, and he, while she's drunk from a party, and like delivers her like to a bed, and like like completely just takes care of her, and is just awesome. Yeah, and it's, it's beautiful. At one point, he's like, "I have to take your shoes off. Yeah, you need to sleep." And <laughs> yeah. you know, he like leaves her alone. Yeah, you know, like any decent person would. Yeah, it's just it's a very good story. I'm glad you started reading it. Yeah, it it's really yeah, happy. it's gorgeous. I love how it's almost got this like watercolor type of style and it's yeah, beautiful it is absolutely gorgeous the rachel smith uh, is an incredible artist so i i had a feeling that you would really like the artwork and and all that stuff so i'm glad you're enjoying it yeah i am thank you for sharing it oh, with me absolutely <laughs> i mean i think we've talked about it in the podcast before but one of my favorite things to do is to like shove things that i like into other people's faces <laughs> <laughs> so i'm glad that you that you actually enjoy it yes i do Ah, all right. Well, I need to go to bed. Yeah, let's, so, let's close out for the night. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for listening to our episode today. Uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and, and Twitter at CrushworthyPod. You can also email us at CrushworthyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Arnie Parrott, for our amazing theme music. Find him at atptunes.com. And we should be posting, usually we post a, a photo album to go along with our episode sometime the same day the episode goes up. So make sure you keep an eye out for that if you guys want to see some pictures of stuff we featured today. Do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. 
All right, guys. Well, enjoy the... I guess this will be our last episode until the new year. Yeah. So enjoy the last of 2019. Be safe. Be responsible. Um, and enjoy the holidays. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And bye. bye. <laughs>